Welcome to ReachMD. You are listening to Closing the Gaps in Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer, sponsored by Lilly. Although no more than 2% of patients with non-small cell lung cancer have a rare genetic mutation involving the RET gene, it's still essential that we as physicians are aware of how this specific mutation impacts our diagnostic and treatment approach. That's why today we're going to be taking a look at this topic through the lens of a real-world patient case. Welcome to Closing the Gaps in Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Cottle, and here to share an interesting patient case from his own experience is Dr. Michael Shafiq, an assistant professor of thoracic oncology at the Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, Florida. Dr. Shafiq, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for uh, having me. So without further ado, Dr. Shafiq, let's just dive right into your patient case. Can you give us some basic background information on one of your patients with RET-mutated non-small cell lung cancer? Oh, absolutely. So I think the the most notable case involved a 54-year-old male. He was a practicing physician in Florida, and he was a never smoker. He presented after experiencing several weeks of blurry vision most notably when he was trying to interact with the electronic medical record in his office. He was finding it very difficult to complete patient notes and place his orders on a day-to-day basis. Okay, excellent. Now, obviously, you now know that this patient has RET-mutated non-small cell lung cancer, but before he was diagnosed, what symptoms, other than the ones you mentioned, did he present with? He actually had very few other associated symptoms. I think the, the primary thing that worried him, you know, being a practicing physician was the, the pretty dramatic onset of uh, blurry vision, but he did not have any associated weight loss, cough, bloody sputum, or, or trouble breathing. So it was never really at the forefront of his mind that he would, you know, ever be diagnosed with lung cancer. Sure. And just for the sake of background information, did he have any particular health history that we should be aware of? He was really only being treated at the time for essential hypertension, but he was otherwise a very healthy individual and would exercise several times a week, which I think is important to note with some of these genetic mutations because they commonly happen in never smokers or non-smokers. Oftentimes, these patients are feeling very good and are in their normal states of health and usually present with pretty advanced disease. You know, now you mentioned some of the symptoms that he had was this blurred vision. You know, are those the typical symptoms that are associated with RET-mutated non-small cell lung cancer? I do think it's relatively common that that these patients either present or or develop during the course of their disease uh, metastatic lesions to the brain. But I think more commonly they will present with respiratory and, and pulmonary symptoms. Typically they have, they tend to have smaller primary tumors. Uh, but they do present more commonly with very extensive nodal metastases. Uh, so the, the tumor itself has already shown and demonstrated a propensity to metastasize through the lymphatic system. And so it's very common for them to, do, for them to present with metastatic lesions, not only in the brain, but in other places, the liver, the bone, uh, for example. Well, with this particular patient, you know, how did you go about diagnosing him with RET-mutated non-small cell lung cancer? And, you know, what types of diagnostic testing did you perform? Probably the most important thing to remember about these patients is it's the most accurate way to to diagnose 
these molecular abnormalities is is through uh, biopsy tissue. And so we ended up performing a bronchoscopy first uh, for this patient. We sampled several mediastinal lymph nodes. And although it's common at a large cancer center like Moffitt, we were able to run most of these mutation tests in our own pathology lab. Um, I think in the community setting, some community uh, hospitals or community cancer centers may not have access to very quick um, molecular uh, testing. Uh, and so sometimes the only way to test for the RET mutation is through outside testing from a a foundation one panel or another next generation sequencing test like that. But here uh, we were able to run the most common molecular abnormalities for, uh, for example, the mutations in either KRAS or the EGFR genes, rearrangements in ROS1 in ROS or ALK. Um, and then, of course, we ran uh, the testing for the RET fusion, which is what he ended up testing positive for. In, in a patient who gets diagnosed with lung cancer, and in, in his case, after the biopsy, he, we specifically subtyped it as adenocarcinoma. It's important to test for these other genetic mutations like EGFR, ALK, and KRAS uh, because um, most of these patients will test positive for one of these one of these genes. For those of you who are just tuning in, you're listening to Closing the Gaps in Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Cottle, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Michael Shafiq about his experiences treating patients with RET-mutated non-small cell lung cancer. So, Dr. Shafiq, earlier you spoke about diagnosing a non-small cell lung cancer patient, and that's certainly what we've been talking about with a RET mutation. But now let's shift over to how this type of genetic mutation impacts your treatment approach. So, going back to this patient case... How did you treat him, and what factors did you consider when selecting a treatment? I think the, the most important factors to consider for this patient um, would be the speed at which you can get this testing done. And so at, uh, at our center, we can get results from these mutation tests in about a week or so. But in some community centers or if uh, community hospitals have to send this testing to be done at a different uh, different site, it can sometimes take up to three weeks to get results back. And so I think if you have a patient who's very symptomatic, it would be it would be wise to send the, the tissue testing off, but then to proceed with uh, maybe more of a standard first-line treatment option and then wait for the mutation testing to come back. Most guidelines, for example, the NCCN, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network guidelines, will, will be supportive of then changing to more targeted therapies if, if a mutation does turn up on subsequent testing. So uh, for this patient, um, we sent off the testing, but because he was very symptomatic from his brain metastases, he ended up electing to undergo uh, radiation to the brain first. And, um, and you know, that, that, helped, that seemed to help uh, the majority of, of his symptoms, and uh, we were waiting for the mutation testing to come back in the meantime. So what are the associated outcomes in patients with RET-mutated non-small cell lung cancer, and what was this particular patient's outcome? Yeah, so RET-mutated lung cancer represents about 1% to 2% of uh, non-small cell lung cancers, and so it's a very rare um, uh, subtype of adenocarcinoma. I, I think the, the, the general outcomes aren't well-established, and I also think the general treatment approaches aren't well um, described either. Uh, so it does 
make it important that we look at sort of the general approach to, to lung cancer. And so for this patient, we ended up electing to treat him with the standard uh, first-line treatment for adenocarcinomas, and we didn't pursue RET-targeted treatment uh, right up front. Uh, so for him, we ended up treating with um, a combination of carboplatin, pemetrexid, and Keytruda, which is a combination of chemotherapy and immunotherapy. Uh, the response rates uh generally are about 50%, if not more, in, in most of these, in, in an unselected population of non-small cell lung cancer patients. Current RET inhibitors that we could use for RET-mutated lung adenocarcinoma um, all have response rates ranging from 18 to 38%. And so just judging by the numbers, it made more sense to, uh, to, to select an un- targeted uh, treatment up front. However, there are, more importantly, uh, there are more potent inhibitors for RET uh, coming down the drug pipeline. And so those response rates are upwards of 60, approaching 80%. And so I think in the future, the outcomes will be much better, and we will potentially be using RET-targeted therapies up front. So for this patient, he progressed after four cycles of the initial chemo plus immunotherapy combination and he required uh, some palliative radiation to a spine lesion. We subsequently were able to enroll him on a clinical trial for a uh, one of these newer uh, RET-targeted therapies, and he enjoyed quite a dramatic response, not only in the bulk of his mediastinal tumors and, and spine uh, lesions, but he had a relapse of his brain metastases, and most of these brain metastases responded very well to this to this treatment. Well, you know, this has been really helpful. Uh, you talking through your patient's case and the different treatments that he received and and treatment options now and hopefully in the future. Before we wrap up, Dr. Shafiq, what are some important considerations for all of us to keep in mind when managing patients with RET mutated non-small cell lung cancer? Probably the most important things to keep in mind is uh, I think with some lung cancers, uh, there are some mutations that, that tend to be mutually exclusive. Uh, for example, if, if patients have a certain mutation, chances are you know they wouldn't have any other concurrent mutation. However, in RET-mutated uh, lung cancers, other mutations are have been reportedly um, more commonly seen as well. And so it would be important to constantly um, reevaluate um, your patient for additional mutations. And so I think that's an important uh, point for um for oncologists to consider. Um, I also think for physicians in general, um, understanding that, you know, even though these patients are non-smokers or never smokers, their disease can be, you know, very aggressive and, and can progress very rapidly with, you know, brain, uh, brain metastases and other metastases. And so just because they don't fit the typical profile of, of a patient with lung cancer, their, their disease can be just as aggressive, if, if not more. And uh, finally, I do think, you know, even though we do have newer RET inhibitors coming, you know, hopefully uh, coming through the approval process, you know, these patients still do respond at about the same rates as, as you would expect in an unselected uh, lung cancer population. And so even though it's a targetable mutation, I do think it's, it's important to know that uh, even the standard treatments can and do offer good treatment outcomes for these patients as well. Excellent. And, and thank you so much for that. You know, even though this type of genetic mutation is rare in non-small cell lung cancer patients, it's still so incredibly important for us to keep this on our radars. And I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Michael Shafiq, for sharing this interesting patient case with us today that demonstrates 
how we can go about diagnosing and treating it. Dr. Shafiq, it was wonderful having you on the program. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you. The preceding program was sponsored by Lilly. Content for this series is produced and controlled by ReachMD. This series is intended for healthcare professionals only. To revisit any part of this discussion and to access other episodes in this series, visit ReachMD.com NSCLC. Thank you for listening to ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.